0: This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we're looking at the life teachings and works of Jesus from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, put together in one chronological flow. Ben, we're marching through the last week of Jesus' life on earth before his crucifixion and resurrection, and we're up to Wednesday, last week, and this week. The day, His last full day of ministry on earth, and he's been doing some teaching on a variety of topics that we heard at our last podcast, and once again, he does some teaching, and we're in Matthew 25, and he tells a story about sheep and goats. You know, I have to admit that I really don't know a whole lot about the actual animals themselves. I've. I've never raised sheep, I've never raised goats. you ever, you ever been around any sheep or any goats too much in your life?
1: Uh the, the yeah, my most uh, I guess intensive time with sheep were uh, I spent a couple of weeks when I was in high school uh in England uh, playing soccer and so I had to stay Wait wait wait
0: they I, called you up to like the
1: no, no. English soccer leagues? <laughs> no, no. I was never some soccer phenom by any means. But I got to go and play soccer uh, for a couple of weeks in England when I was a, a freshman in high school. And I was staying with this family. And uh, the family I was staying with, uh, their home, uh, on both sides of their of, the, of their home, their home was surrounded by this sheep farm. And it stunk to high heaven. But what I will tell you is that uh, I love, I do love sheep, uh, to eat them. They are (laughs) when they are done right, man, I'll tell you what, uh, there are a few things better in this world.
0: There was some good eating right there, huh?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: They didn't have any goats that you could do. No, no
1: goats. Um, I got, I remember getting attacked by a goat one time when I was at the, uh, the petting zoo, um, at the, uh, Audubon Zoo in New Orleans, uh, growing up as a kid. I do remember a goat coming for me, uh, in the petting zoo. Uh, but yeah, my mom tells a story that when she was a a little girl
0: little child, they had, they had animals and their, their family goat got into the house one day and, pinned her up against the wall while she was on her bed and when and wouldn't let her go, so I don't think she has affectionate memories what? of that goat too much she's eighty nine years old and still tells the story like it happened yesterday <laughs> so uh anecdotally, I suppose I know a few things about sheep and goats have never really hung out with them too much but in in the context of Jesus' ministry, they were everywhere that this was that that people were raising sheep, they were raising goats. They were all over the place. I mean, when Jesus was born, it was shepherds who came to him. Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd. So sheep and goats were simply a part of their culture, and they were all over the place, and people were around them. They experienced them. They knew them. So Jesus, again, it's his last full day of ministry with the public, with people around him. He's with his, his followers right now, and he's teaching He's preparing them for life after him. And so his stories have this this view of the end of his time on earth, and they will then be the ones leading the church. So he speaks this message to them. I'm in Matthew 25, verse 31, speaking about himself. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, again, a, a view toward his return, and all the angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So at this moment in time, people perhaps don't know why he's telling this story of separating the animals. He goes on to say verse 34, And you looked after me, I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the sheep, the righteous, will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? It's a fair question. When would Jesus have needed those things? The king will reply, "Truly, I tell you, whatever you did, for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me." As Jesus tells the story, Ben, about the sheep at this point, the righteous at this point who are have done these things for others. What's the application that we have for our lives and the way that we do ministry? In our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our world,
1: that were to image, I think the God's pursuit of us and our care uh, for others, and and part of that does, I mean, and and I think we see this throughout the the uh, epistles as well. There, there's an aspect, at least when I read uh, when I read this passage, there's an aspect uh, to this about our care for. Our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. When Jesus says the king will reply, I tell you the truth: whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, uh, you did for me. And so, one one of the things, and one of the principles I, I tend to uh, to to live by, or it, or attempt to reflect, or at least understand that that our love, the formation of our Christ centered heart begins within the body of Christ. And so as we love one another within the body of Christ, as we lavish uh, God's love upon one another, as we reflect God's forgiveness uh, to us, to uh, one another, we see our hearts uh, nurtured more fully to image Christ. So as we're imaging Christ to one another within the walls of the church, then uh, that love begins to overflow outside uh, the walls of the church where we image that to Uh, to our community itself. And so again, uh, as we talked about last week, our identity being rooted uh, in Jesus Christ, that we are going out and we are reflecting Christ to others. That is our primary desire, uh, the heart by which the follower of Christ lives as we take up our cross, as we follow after uh, Jesus, is ultimately uh, to image the, the character of Christ to another. Um, as we seek to, sh- to, to bear witness uh, to Christ, to that person.
0: Yeah, in, in a very tangible way, we are ministering to God as we minister to others. Yeah. In their brokenness, in their pain, in their struggle in life, we are called to enter into their life. As and I, and I think that maybe what we need to really focus on is listening to the Holy Spirit, who will direct us about how and with whom we should be involved and then obeying and following through and, and living into that. One of the, I think one of the challenges is that we can often become paralyzed because the problems are so pervasive. They're just, there's so many of them. They're so large. And in our modern world, we hear about all of them in seconds. We we know immediately about flooding in Texas. We know immediately about problems that are happening in Ukraine. We know immediately about things that are far away to things that are close at home. And it can seem overwhelming and perhaps cause us to do nothing. Jesus has something to say about that, and it's in the next section, verse 41. Then he, that is the king, returning king, will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, You who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Ouch! For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in. I needed clothes. You did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, interesting phrase, they use the word Lord, they knew him, they knew Jesus, they had relationship with him, apparently. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? We didn't see you like that. Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me. So that what you just described flips in this scenario and our reluctance or disobedience when we are called to minister to somebody who's in need, when we don't do it, it's as if Jesus himself was in that situation and we said, no thanks.
1: Right. And so I think inherent to this, too, you know, you you made the comment a second ago about when we look out upon the world and we see the level of brokenness that exists, there's a feeling of uh, it's only I mean, it's overwhelming because you can't fix everything. You you can't uh, care for everybody. Um, And so there's an essence here, too, of, you know, there's a ministry of proximity uh, that exists for the follower of Christ. And so there is a there's a sense uh here that you know all the the folks who they've basically ignored a need that is right in front of their face and they have refused to uh to meet that need um for whatever reason you know their rationale is not given here because for the follower of Christ um one of the things that we seek to image is the excessive love that we have experienced through Christ and so as Christ uh, you know, as, as Paul talks about in second Corinthians eight in reference to the Macedonian church, Macedonian church, you know, a church that is impoverished, a church that is suffering. And yet they give lavishly to their brothers and sisters in Christ in need as Paul has come to them and taken up a collection uh, for the folks in Jerusalem. And Paul talks about what has compelled the Macedonians to give. And it's that Christ who is rich, you know, made himself poor, for our sake, he says in Second Corinthians 8. And so uh, we're supposed to image the excessiveness, the excessive nature of God's love to others. So we don't give out of excess, but give excessively. So when we are confronted with the need of another, um, which is what we see in the passage, we're called upon in some way, shape, or form um, to bring wholeness into the midst of that brokenness. We might not be able to to fix you know, so-called fix the situation, uh, but we can love the person in the midst of their struggle.
0: Yeah, faithfulness more than results. I mean, in terms of like not doing it because we can't fix it. Right. That's well said. But, you know, Jesus, his his teachings here on his last couple of days, they've been in some ways controversial because he, he really had it out with the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we saw uh, a few weeks ago. And now he's, he's really speaking to his followers, his disciples, and preparing them for ministry without him and for his return and sort of how to live in the between times, in between his resurrection and his ascension, which is coming days away, and his return, which we have not yet experienced. So it's really a message for all of us who are living in these between times, between his first coming and his second coming, how to be in ministry. And Jesus had said, you know, you always have the poor with you. So here's a, a living example of how to live with that. Now, I, I want to s- turn the page to the next chapter of Matthew. It's the very next verse, Matthew 26, verse 1, because as Jesus is concluding this talking about ministry to the least and the last and the lost, so to speak, he wasn't received very well, and he knew that he, he knew that even though he's talking about ministry to help people, that the leaders, the religious leaders, still had it out for him. And we see this in chapter 26, verse 1 of Matthew. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the place of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. And then there's a story, a third story of Jesus being anointed But if we move down to verse 14, it says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to those chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. So even as Jesus is is ministering to his followers about how to be in ministry to a broken world, one of his own people and all of the religious leadership of that day were plotting together, scheming, the scripture says, to do away with him. It's It's a sober ending to three years of ministry that was Power packed, and it's coming to this: what looks to be an inglorious end, with one of his dirty dozen—I mean, his his twelve followers, one of his good friends
1: that he called betraying him. A sad story, isn't it? Yeah, there's the essence of betrayal by his—you know—one of his closest friends one of the 12 that he has called and taken in. Um, and, and it is, I mean, it's hard to look at the story without seeing obviously the bigger picture and especially thinking and knowing that Jesus chose Judas, knowing Judas was going to betray him. Mm. It wasn't that this came as a shock uh, to Jesus, but Jesus picked Judas. Um, and, and in some ways it was, I mean, it's it's a piece of the puzzle on his way to the cross. He picks him with intent. Knowing that Judas is going uh, to betray him, and yet in the midst of those years, those three years together, uh, you know, Jesus let him in um, in every way to where this is somebody who he loves, um, who is who is uh, who is part of his beloved uh, community, Um, and so and and so we feel the the heart the hurt and the heartache uh, in the midst of the betrayal. Um, even later when Judas is crushed really by it. I'm not sure if uh unless I've misread something, I'm not I'm not sure that Judas anticipated death for Jesus, even knowing that Jesus has shared that the the intent of the religious leaders to, to turn him uh uh to, to kill him, and Judas is just looking for Uh, just looking for, uh, some money as a means to, to play kind of the insider who's going to, to find a means for them to arrest Jesus when he's off by himself. And then we later see the reaction of Judas when Christ is actually crucified and, uh, you know, he goes and throws the money back and goes out and sadly hangs himself as he is heartbroken over what's happened. It it feels at
0: this point if if you were reading through this the first time and didn't know any of it, what what a sad ending. Yeah, and yeah. and maybe in some ways like what a bad job of Jesus preparing this guy and, sure. and leading him into it. I mean, this was the guy who was put in charge of the ministry money, right? So for three right. years he's he's handling he's the accountant of the group or whatever, and he's the trusted treasurer, and now he's going off to. Pocket some more money to turn him in, and then his guilt overwhelms him, and it, it feels like such a defeated moment. Especially after Jesus just told this parable we looked at last week over how to handle it when somebody gives you five bags of gold or one bag of gold, and here he goes and chases thirty pieces of silver, which was no small amount. Sure, let's be honest, it was no small amount in order for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. And as we, as we ex Explore this more deeply in the in the coming weeks. The actual moment of his arrest and his crucifixion, and the burial in the tomb. Those these next few days had to seem like an eternity for the disciples of Jesus. They watch, watch one another fall one by one. They will watch Jesus be crucified. Their their leaders dead. He's buried. They had to had to be some dark days ahead from this moment forward really well here's what i what i summarize kind of some of this when we when we take a magnifying glass and look at individual moments and events we can often see the wrong thing we can look at this and say, Jesus failed. The ministry didn't work out. His leader turned on him, and we'll see the others that end up abandoning him and denying him and all those things soon. And if we we just press in really closely, it can look like that. But when we step back and look at the big picture, maybe the 30,000-foot view, from our perspective, we see God's loving hand in all of this. We see that Jesus knew that he would die for our sins. He didn't stumble into the crucifixion. He didn't whoopsie his way into picking Judas. He he knew exactly what he was doing, and he came to give his life for us and for our sins. So I like to end this one a little differently than we do a lot of times. Uh, but Ben, I'd like you to, to pray. I'd like you to to pray for us as we are listening to this about this man, Jesus, who's we've been studying for this whole year and his life comes down to this moment when one of his closest followers is betraying him, but he knew that he was going to be crucified for us and for our sins. So can you can you pray for the listeners today?
1: Father, we give you thanks for who you are. We give you thanks, uh, Father, for your redeeming love toward us. We give you thanks, Father, that Christ yielded himself to the cross for our sake, to bear the weight, to bear the penalty uh, of our sin, and that uh, this was his intent uh, for the good shepherd, as he says, lays down his life uh, for his sheep. And so we give you thanks, uh, Father, uh, for the the work of Christ uh, in our life to redeem us, to save us, to reconcile us to you, to secure our forgiveness, uh, to know, Lord God, that in Christ we have received your eternal embrace. And for any who yet have yet to receive Christ, I, I pray, uh, Father, they would take another look at the work of Jesus, that they would uh, receive that embrace, that they would receive, love, Lord God, the, the love that you have offered to them through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. Thank you. Next time we'll look at Jesus in the upper room, his last supper washing his disciples' feet. Until then, may God bless.